Well, if you have been with us since last week, then you know that we have started a new series following Easter Sunday. But it all is really essentially tied together. We're talking about the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, but before He ascended to the Father. And last week, we had an amazing message brought to us by our very own Ina Jones. Where, where? Oh, there she is. All the choir is in a different seat this morning. And so I'm looking in the back, I was like, oh no, she's not in her seat. Uh, but she's right there. Uh, and she, she gave us a, brought us a word from uh, the road to Emmaus found in Luke 24. In fact, it's just the passage directly following the passage we used on Resurrection Sunday. But she brought us this word and unpacked so much in this message. But there's one thing that I really resonated with. It was this idea of having these two disciples walk down the road together who had spent all this time with Jesus in the flesh. They heard his teachings and yet they still wrestled with the doubt of who he said he was how he died and how he was buried. And they were wondering if he would or actually could rise from the dead. And the comfort for me was that they had each other to wrestle with. That in that place that Jesus can show up when two or more are gathered together, that he is right there among them, even in their doubt. And so that is my encouragement, and I hope it is also yours, that you have that brother or sister in Christ who is there to talk to, there to lean to, there to wrestle with when doubt arises. And that's how Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. And this morning, we're actually going to continue seeing how Jesus appears to those whom He loves. And today, we're going to particularly look at the appearance that He makes to Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can follow along. John 20, 11 through 18 reads, But Mary... She stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Raboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, I have no supposition to know what it is that you are doing in our hearts this morning. God, even as I stand here, I do not know the fullness of this delivery, but God, I pray that the words would be yours. God, that they would not be my own. And anything that is from me would fall to the ground like dust and be blown away. But God, if there is anything that can come out of this broken vessel this morning, let it be your Son glorified in all of his glory and majesty. God, we love you. We thank you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as I start this morning, I actually want to bring up a story that happened last year in July. It's actually July 4th, and a whole bunch of people have gathered at a local country club in Kennesaw, Georgia, to play a round of golf before the big fireworks show and the big cookout that happens every 4th of July. And so they have gathered, and people are playing, and there's a group that's on the ninth green. And there are people in the pro shop, and people gathered out by the pool, just waiting and expecting for all the festivity that is about to happen. And then they hear gunshots ring out on the tenth green. Just this last week, Sports Illustrated had their daily cover on this story. Almost a year later, talking about the tragedy on the 10th at Pine Tree Country Club. You see, this is actually a really real story for me because I had students and families in the church in which I was serving that attended that country club people that were actually on that 10th green, or on the 9th green, sorry, not on the 10th green. By grace, the entire 10th hole was cleared when this happened. But tragedy struck, and it hit the heart of a lot of people, but none more so than probably the family of the life that was stolen that day of the PGA professional that worked at Pine Tree Country Club, Gene Seiler, thinking that something had happened to the driver as a truck ran across the 10th green and got stuck on the bunker. He ran out to find out what was going on, only to find his life stolen from him. I'm not going to go into the horrific details because they are quite horrific. But in that article from Sports Illustrated, they shared a glimpse into the life of Ashley Seiler, what it has looked like for her over this last year and all the pain that she has gone through and the grief that she has suffered at the loss, at the love of her life. The author shares this glimpse. He says, now, as Ashley cooks supper and the clock creeps toward 7 p.m., 
She still waits for the side door to swing open, for her boys to dash to their impeccably dressed father, for Jean to fill the room with the warmth that's gone missing. Her eyes shift from the clock to the door, the clock to the door, but it never opens. I share that story because, one, it is real to me. It affected people in my life that I love and care about. But the truth and the reality of hearing this story is that to some level, all of us have shared in Ashley's pain. Whether it was the loss of a spouse too soon, or a loving parent or grandparent advanced in years, We've all tasted the pain of death around us. We've all known that grief and sorrow. And it's inevitable that each of us will experience that loss in our life at one point or another and then multiple times throughout. It's an inescapable reality for us that death simply surrounds us. But just because we know it's there doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean that it's going to hurt less or be less painful or that we're going to be able to get over it quicker. And even in the face of knowing that it is coming at some point for all of us, even in moments where it is someone we love and they've been going through the pain for a long time, just knowing it's coming doesn't make it easier. Sometimes it even compounds the pain that we feel when that void is left in our hearts without their presence. And you see, that's actually where we enter into today's Scripture. That void felt in Mary. That that pain that she is experiencing at the loss of Christ. But just before Mary, we experience that with the rest of the disciples. We enter into the passage right back where we were on Easter Sunday. The women have gone out to the tomb early in the morning and they see that the stone has been rolled away. And then Mary, she runs, she runs back to the disciples to let them know his body is gone. She's so distraught at the missing body of Jesus. She doesn't know what to do. She runs to the disciples who also are mourning and grieving the loss of their Christ, running to them. And in response to hearing her cry, John and Peter, they run out to the tomb. They need to see for themselves what is going on. And so they run. And John actually outruns Peter. He makes it to the tomb first. But he doesn't look in. He doesn't look in to see what it is that awaits can almost sense as if the grief that John is feeling at that moment is too much to bear to think that, what am I going to find in this tomb if I go in alone? And so though he made it first, he waits for Peter to arrive. And when Peter arrives, they look in and they only find the grave clothes remaining, neatly folded upon the slab upon which Jesus' body had lain. It's actually in that moment that the Scripture says that John believed. But then it gives us this little caveat. But he didn't understand. He didn't 
understand. He believed, but he didn't understand. And I can't help but think, how many times in our lives do we know that that our loved ones have entered into a better place, that they're sitting with Jesus, and yet we still cannot comprehend why? And even here, the disciples knew that what Jesus had told him, them considering his resurrection, concerning his deity, and yet they still could not fully comprehend it. They had Jesus in the flesh, and yet they still wrestled with disbelief. I mean, that's exactly what we heard last week when Ina's message, this disbelief that was in their heart. There is this fruit of belief in our lives, but sometimes life circumstances railroad us into doubt. And at this moment, the disciples have been thoroughly railroaded. Enter Mary Magdalene. And our focus for today's passage may be the first person to whom Jesus appears because it still would have been early in the morning. Maybe not yet has he walked the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. But here we are. Mary. Who sits there alone at the tomb. Because after John and Peter had seen the empty tomb, they left. And we don't know if Mary was running with them, or if she was too exhausted to run with them that time, so she just meandered back to the tomb, and when she arrived, they were already gone, so there she was alone, distraught and exhausted by herself, due to the multiple trips she's already made to the tomb, and then the scripture tells us that she stood outside weeping, weeping. The context of this word in the Greek isn't just some subdued, subdued sob, but it is a wail from the depths of her heart over the loss of Jesus. Not just his death, but also his stolen body. And this isn't unheard of in the culture of that day. This is actually a very common practice to wail the loss of your loved one. But I can guarantee that this whale carried something different that day. Something that hadn't been heard before in the cry of someone. You could sense it in the air as she cried that this was not just any mourner. It's somebody that mourned knowing a great love. An unfathomable love. Because here's what we need to know as we enter into the story today. Who is Mary Magdalene? You see, she was no simple follower of Jesus. She was one that was fully devoted to the one who forgave her and delivered her from much. You see, Mary Magdalene was a woman of ill repute. To say it simply, she was a prostitute and a demoniac. She had given her life to sin and she had been possessed. Surely, if there was anyone that Jesus should not have surrounded himself with, it would have been this woman. It would have been Mary. And yet, 
Here she is, the solo mourner among all the other disciples. She's the one that stands outside the tomb, mourning the loudest and the deepest. And I have to ask myself, why? Why Mary? Because the one who has been forgiven much will love much. She loves Jesus fiercely because he has given her hope beyond hope. When every other religious leader of the day shunned her off, Jesus didn't. It reminds me so much of Romans 2.4 where the scripture says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, it is the kindness of Jesus and his love for Mary that lifted Mary from her living death into life. Repentance for her was an act of love toward God in response to his love toward her. And it's the same for us. Repentance toward God is our act of love toward him in our response of his love toward us. And it gives me so much pause to consider how in my own life, God has moved on me. Not that I lead this righteous life on the outside. It's not about me declaring my righteousness, about how good I am but really how much the people around me and those who encounter me know how much I have been forgiven. It's hard for me not to look in the modern day church and see how much we have become a place twisted, full of Pharisees and Sadducees that gather to display their righteousness. When Jesus intentionally surrounded himself with those that were willing to admit their sin and brokenness to the world and to one another, that the grace and mercy of Jesus might be displayed all the more. Then when we as the church acknowledge more about how much we have been forgiven, then how much more will we not only display the love of Christ within our own hearts, But how much more will the love of Christ be shown through our lives? And so Mary, finally through bloodshot eyes and a tear-filled veil, looks into the tomb. And she finds two angels of the Lord sitting upon the slab. And they ask her, Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And she's able to squeak out, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where he is. On Easter Sunday, we got a different version of this in Luke, but John continues and says that in the midst of that, She has this prompt to turn around. And there she sees Jesus, but she does not recognize him. 
It's the same as those on the road to Emmaus. They were walking with Jesus, and yet they did not recognize Him. And yet here she turns, and Jesus asks her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Oh, I really love that question. We know why she is weeping. We've already gotten that answer. We've already gotten the response from her about why she is weeping. Jesus would have heard it as he was standing there hearing the conversation with the angels. But, you see, she is weeping because Jesus is dead. She is weeping because his body is gone. Dead and gone. That is all that she knows that the inanimate, lifeless body of Jesus is no longer around, and so she cries. But then Jesus asks her, whom are you seeking? No longer is the implication of the question just one of death, but one of life. Because in fact, there is someone that she is looking for, not something. There is someone for her heart to seek and to know. Someone whom her heart can latch onto. Someone to whom she can feel alive because life has been given. The question about why you are weeping is one simply of death, but the question of whom are you seeking transforms it into one of life, asking where is the person that you are looking for? The relationship still lives. And so Jesus, we oftentimes in our own lives see him as completely unobtainable because we live our lives not getting to experience him in his flesh. We don't get to experience Jesus as this tangible person. We often only get to think of Jesus in this way that he is out there somewhere that he's completely ethereal, that he is this metaphysical being, that he's ghostly, intangible. And the, the truth and the reality is when we live with that mindset, we actually live as Mary in the question, why are you weeping? We're living as if Jesus is not alive. We live not knowing or believing that he is someone to be sought. Instead, we live our lives with this blazoned look, just living our religious lives without any relationship to the one who actually gives life. It's, it's fascinating to me in my own life where there are these moments that I see relationship with Jesus as an actual thing that can be grasped. And when I'm living my life that way, it's really easy to want to be seeking him, to wanting to be diving into the scriptures, to be in prayer, to go to worship and all the experiences that, that lead me into life-giving moments with Christ. But in the moments of life where there is doubt, in the moments of life where things just kind of come crashing down around me, I forget how much Jesus is actually obtainable as a relationship. Instead, I just remember him as one who died. 
no longer one to be sought. And yet He is one whom we should seek. And so when Jesus pushes Mary to the whom do you seek, He is pushing her to not search for something that is a dead body, but a someone that is an alive Christ. And so Mary repeats her abjection to Jesus at this moment. They have taken Him, and are you the one that took Him? Did you take His body from us? And if you did, please tell me where, because I want to claim it back. And then, oh, love this. And then the loving Jesus, in the fullness of seeing that she still does not understand, calls her by name, Mary. And is in that instant of hearing her name, from the lips of her Lord that she cries out with the affectionate Rabboni. Oh, teacher, it is you. You stand before me now alive. I can't read that and then not think of what Jesus taught in John chapter 10, that He is the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knows His sheep, and His sheep know His voice. And so when He cries out the name of Mary, Mary knows who it is that is calling her name. Because He is her good shepherd. And He is alive. He is calling her to look for relationship, not merely religion. And so as we come to the conclusion of this passage, we hear that, that Jesus goes to tell Mary, goes on to tell Mary, do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But you should go and tell the other disciples that I am ascending to My Father and to your Father to my God and to your God. I can only imagine the situation that the moment that Mary hears her name, she just lunges forward and grasps Jesus with this, this big hug and she just can't seem to let go. And she's just weeping because no longer is it sobs of mourning, but sobs of joy that Jesus is alive, that relationship is restored, and that everything that she had hoped had come into reality. She embraced him with everything that she had. And I often wonder in my own life, would I love Jesus more if I could throw my arms around him? If I could touch him? If I could know him physically? The way that Mary knew him. But I think that the reality is that Jesus told her not to cling to him for a very specific reason because He has not yet ascended. 
And you might be curious, well, what does that even mean? Well, Jesus taught His disciples again and again and again in John 15 and in John 16. It is better for Him to go to the Father. Because when He does, He will send His Holy Spirit upon us. The Holy Spirit is better than Christ incarnate. That can be so hard to believe. But the reality is that we live our lives as Christians given the gift of the Holy Spirit within us to live out the lives that God has called us to live because no longer is Christ walking in the flesh as the Word of God in a single place at a single time. But now, Christ can be everywhere for His Spirit is within all those who believe. And so here, even in this church, I stand before Christians, little Christs, lots of Jesuses who have the ability to go into all the world and to share exactly who Jesus is, to share His love because He went to the Father and sent His Holy Spirit to live within you. So what does that mean for us? I think the ultimate reality is that there is so far two differences between the appearances of Jesus that we've had. You see, Jesus spent an entire walk on the road to Emmaus. And then it wasn't until he broke bread before he was seen for who he was. And yet with Mary, it took two questions in her name and she knew. Jesus in one instance might have been teaching us and showing us what it looks like to wrestle with doubt. To wrestle with each other. And to pray with one another that we would be strengthened and encounter Jesus through each other's witness. But for Mary, I think it is far more personal. And again, I think it lies in the single question that Christ asks, and whom are you seeking? What does your relationship with Jesus look like right now? The question is, how are you encountering him every day? More so, are you actually seeking him Or are you expecting him to do all the seeking of you? Because I think oftentimes in my own life, I expect Jesus to come to me. But scripture lays it out again and again and again that I'm the one seeking. He's already there. But if I'm not willing to do what is required of me to search for him, how will I ever find him? And the same question rings out for all of us. How much are we really seeking? How much do we really desire relationship with Him? How much are we interested in finding Him out in our own lives? Is Sunday morning enough for us? I think that the way we answer that question will help us have a better view of how Christ moves in us and through us. But I think that the greater reality of what causes us to want to seek Christ is for the same reason that Mary loved Him much. We need to be a kind of people that are like Mary's who acknowledge 
what we have been forgiven of. Not to follow in her path of sin, but follow her in her journey of forgiveness. Jesus told her that nobody cast a stone. But he also said to her, go and sin no more. She recognizes the depth of what she had done. And to be honest, she probably still very much knows she is capable of every sin that she was committing. But she also knows of how much she has been forgiven. And so she followed Jesus and sought after the one who forgives. She gave up everything to walk with him, to talk with him, to know him, to seek him. And so when she lost him, she lost everything. But when she turned around and heard her shepherd call her name, she found everything. And when Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I still have to go to the Father, she didn't weep again. She rejoiced knowing that the Holy Spirit would come because he was alive and that the Holy Spirit was better because she heard the teaching and she knew that it would be good. And so when we as the church respond as Mary did, when we can actually show the case of the greater reality of Jesus and his work to those around us, that he loves us much and has forgiven us much, when we live our lives knowing that we're not righteous, we make mistakes. If we're willing to show that to the world, but also share with the world, hey, I still need Jesus. How much more will they know how much he loves them because of how much he loves us and how much we respond to that love in loving him in kind by seeking him wherever he's at. Let us find him in our lives so that he can be revealed to those around us. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we love you. We thank you. We know that Mary suffered much, went through so much, but she was forgiven even more. That your grace abounded in her life. And so when she was weeping, she wept out of love. And when she heard her name, she rejoiced out of love as well. Being able to go on and share the good news with the disciples and with the world. For that, we are thankful that we too have been given the same forgiveness that she has been given and the same grace that she received, that we too can acknowledge the depth of love that is within you for us to return. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.